I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. By now, we've all seen those pictures of the virus, a fuzzy little tennis ball with those little sticky-outy things all over it. Somebody thought that resembled a crown, somehow, which is where coronavirus gets its name. This tiny thing is the enemy. This is what has turned the world upside down. I've gotten kind of obsessed with these malevolent little entities. They're not quite creatures, not quite things. What are they? How do they work? I've talked to a bunch of scientists about this, starting with Harmeet Malik in the Division of Basic Sciences at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. Viruses are parasites that are able to commandeer host cells in order to reproduce themselves. Are viruses alive? So the way I prefer to think about it is that viruses are chemical entities which, when they are commandeering host cells, are alive, but perhaps more chemical than biological. So in a sense, they're born when they invade a cell. In a sense, they're born when they invade the cell. That's when their life cycle sort of re-triggers itself. I don't know about you, but that not-quite-aliveness is something I find really creepy. These inanimate things that only switch on when they're sucking the life out of your cell, it has such a mindless, mechanistic, terminator feeling to it. And I found myself fixating on how this thing does its evil business in our bodies and makes us sick. So to understand that, I went on a little microbiology adventure, and I'm going to drag you with me. Okay? Our first job is, what's a virus made of? Typically, the virus is actually made up of three components— There's the inner core of genetic material. In this case, it's RNA. Think of individual strands of an unwound DNA helix. And then there's this hard shell around it made of proteins, which are the big chunky molecules that are the building blocks of biology. The outer protein shell is called the capsid, but then there is also a shield around the capsid that allows the viruses the ability to infect cells. That shield is actually a fatty little membrane studded with those sticky outies. Both of those things, by the way, will loom large in our story later on. But first, we know now what the virus looks like to us. So what do we look like to it? Imagine a little movie shot from the point of view of the virus. For this, I enlisted Wes Van Voorhees, professor of medicine at the University of Washington, UW senior scientist Lexi Walls, and Fred Hutch faculty member Jesse Bloom. Okay, movie time. In our opening shot, two people are standing, say, three feet apart. One is sick, one isn't. And then the sick one coughs. A little droplet of phlegm flies from sicko's mouth at about 30 feet a second. It arcs through the air and lands in the other person's mouth. Keep in mind, this is like a one in a billion shot. You know, most of these viruses fail to end up in a respiratory droplet that lands in someone else's airways, but it can happen. They would go into your mouth and down your trachea into your lungs. It's just kind of oozing along in your mucus. Once it's in your nose or mouth, the virus is basically just along for the ride until it finds a cell type that it's able to infect. Down the respiratory tract, it goes. So the virus can't really do anything to you until it's gotten into your cells. So it's waiting to make basically a handshake with a protein that's on the outside of your cells in order to get in. It binds this receptor I'm sure you've heard about called angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. You've heard of that, right? No? 
one of the proteins that's on some of the cells in our airways is called ACE2. And that's the thing that this virus finds. It'll grow in many different kinds of the cells in the body, but because at receptors expressed a lot in the lung, a lot of the damage happens there. So remember, the virus is basically lifeless and harmless until it gets inside a cell via that handshake of death. It comes back to those spiky proteins on the surface of the virus. It turns out they are shaped perfectly, exquisitely, to grab hold of those ACE2 proteins on the lung cell. And so once that happens, the virus is attached to the cell. And the virus does this using a protein called spike. Uh, and actually, those of us in Seattle should be really proud because a lot of the information we know about the spike protein was determined by the lab of David Fiesler, who's a scientist at the University of Washington. I joined David's lab in 2015, and so I've been working on coronaviruses ever since. Man, you really backed the right horse there. Yeah. <laughs> so those spike proteins lock on to an ACE2 molecule on the cell. And each of those spike proteins has three grabbers on the end, and each one is able to grab uh, ACE2 uh, receptor. They signal to the cell. And then there's typically a trigger. So some form of event that allows the spike protein to rearrange. Sort of get itself through the cell membrane. And that's the kiss of death for the cell. And now the virus is inside the cell. And this is where bad stuff starts to happen. The person we're inside right now has no idea what's going on. They're going to the grocery store and watching Netflix and doing Zoom calls. But inside, this is that key moment when the virus reanimates. And then it starts making all the different, you know, kind of evil proteins it makes to replicate itself. Once those proteins are made, it sort of takes over the whole cell, shuts down what the cell's normally doing, and turns it into a virus factory. And here's how that works. The virus's software, its RNA, starts floating around. It bumps into a cellular machine called a ribosome, which normally reads the cell's RNA. The ribosomes have no idea. They just crank through and make, make these viral proteins. Some of those virus parts have chillingly specific jobs. One protein intercepts the cell's calls for help. Another blocks these little snares the cell has to catch viruses before they escape. And then there's the stuff that builds the virus, like those spike proteins and the capsid shell. Those things basically self-assemble. They essentially go towards the cell membrane and start forming their own viruses that can bud out and leave the host cell. And as it leaves, the new virus pulls one more cold-blooded trick. So the virus, on its way out from a cell after going through its life cycle, steals a bit of the host plasma membrane and basically wraps itself in that, cloaks itself, because it does not want the immune system to recognize it as a foreign entity. Just sounds dastardly somehow, like they just are dressing up in the skin of their victims. I just, I go to, I go to dark places. Anyway, the cell keeps pumping out new viruses until it dies, and the viruses fan out to kill again. And this process happens many times. Or at least it can. We don't know how many viruses it takes to get someone sick. 
For a lot of us, our immune system will fight it off before it gets out of control. But in some of us, it just keeps multiplying. After four or five days of this process, there's enough viruses that caused enough damage and elicited enough of immune reaction that you start to feel sick. And so as it repeatedly infects those deep lung cells, they get inflamed and they basically, your lung fills up with water and inflammatory cells, and then you can't breathe anymore. And roll credits. This little virus movie, it's pretty dark. It's like one of those films you queue up on Netflix and then when the time comes, you don't feel like watching something depressing and so you just rewatch Austin Powers instead. But there are some bright spots too. Now that we know almost exactly how that protein handshake works when the virus attaches to the cell, we might be able to interrupt it with a drug. If you can prevent the virus from even entering the cell at the first point, then you've prevented infection. You've successfully done it. Um, So blocking that interaction is of high importance for all of us working in the field. And another thing, that horrible bit when the virus steals a little bit of the cell's skin and wraps itself up in it, That could be one of the virus's weaknesses. That envelope, remember, is a fatty little covering, kind of like a soap bubble. This one is really easy to kill. So with things like greater than 70% alcohol, strips off the membrane, very dilute, something like eight drops of uh, dish detergent in 12 ounces of water kills it, you know, relatively dilute soaps and stuff. So, So that's an advantage for cleaning it. When you take a really close look at this virus and you learn all of its diabolical tricks, you can figure out how to exploit them. You need the plans for the Death Star in order to find the weakness. And that takes time. So it only works if, when you have a crisis, people like Lexi Walls and the Wiesler Lab at UW have already been working on it for years. I think this is showing how uh, important basic science and basic research is because Luckily, a lot of us have been researching coronaviruses for some time, and so that does allow us to hit the ground running. Um, If we hadn't been funding this research when perhaps there wasn't a global pandemic, we would be much farther behind than we even currently are. Thanks to Lexi Walls and Wes Van Voorhees of the University of Washington, and Jesse Bloom and Harmeet Malik of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner, Kevin Kniestead, and Jennifer Wing. This episode was mixed by Bethany Denton. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila. We really appreciate everyone who's left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and you can send feedback to outreach at knkx.org or at Gabriel Spitzer on Twitter. We'll also have links to a bunch of the original research on our website, transmissionpodcast.org. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Catch you next time on Transmission.